So today is the first Sunday of 2024. That said, we are committing our morning and our early evening today, the first Sunday of the month, the first Sunday of the year. We are committing ourselves to worshiping him this morning as we are right now. And in the evening, I hope you'll come back at four o'clock as we worship our triune God together and we give him what is his due, our first fruits, our morning and our evening. Speaking of morning, this morning's message I have entitled the New Year, Same Word. New Year, Same Word. And in this message, I want to remind us of the power of God's Word and its providential preservation of a people who bear witness to its, the Bible's, power. In addition to pointing us to the power of Scripture and the preservation of its witness, in addition to that, I want to survey the sad reality of our proneness to wander from the Word of God. And in light of today's message that, that aims to call us Uh, to to the power of God's Word, to see God's hand in preserving a witness of His Word and reminding us of this danger that we're prone to wander. Today's message aims to call us to purity as we respond to the preaching of the law and the gospel in repentance and faith. Speaking of the Word of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Word of God in our canon of Scriptures, the book of Genesis. Have your fingers ready this morning because today's message, I'll be expositing various texts, but we're going to be moving around the text of Scripture so that I can share with you about the power of the Word, our proneness to wander, the preservation of God's witness of His Word, and call us to purity and worship. As you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis in the first chapter, um, for many in our church culture, you likely have been reading Genesis 1 this week because it's New Year's and For a lot of us, the new year starts and then we're like, hey, I'm going to read through the Bible this year and hopefully you pick up the schedules that we have out there or if there's another read through the Bible schedule you want to use, you're reading through the Bible. So Genesis 1 is one that maybe you've been thinking about as the new year is upon us and you're committing yourself to the Word of God. And as you open to Genesis, you're met immediately with God and you're met immediately with the first point on our outline, that is the power of the Word. What's going on here in the opening chapter? You read verse 1, chapter 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then you, you look, look at the text with your eyes, you see the repetition of God said, God said, God said, God said, God made. God is creating. God is the main character of the Bible as the Bible opens, and throughout the Bible He remains the main character of the text. And so we read the text with a, 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 a theocentric hermeneutic, looking for God and looking for what the Word teaches us about the God who is. The Bible is a book about God. Look at this first chapter. See how powerful He is. See how He creates. And there is no description of Him struggling with the creation. There's no description of Him sort of taking some kind of pre-existent matter or whatever. He, he creates out of nothing. He creates without, without complication. He creates without frustration. Unlike you and I, Uh, I don't know about you, but when I got to fix something around the house, I go to Home Depot and I come back and then I got to go to Home Depot again and come back and then maybe go to Home Depot again and come back. And then even that, you know, I probably got to put some duct tape on it. I mean, you try to fix something, you try to make something, you're going to be met with frustration. But the God who we meet in Genesis 1, there's no frustration there. He makes creation ex nihilo out of nothing when is the last time that you made something out of nothing right wow god is powerful 
And notice that he is creating simply by the power of his speech, his word. He speaks and it happens. I, I mean, man, wouldn't that be great to just speak and it happens? You know, clean your room. Yes, Father. You know, or just clean your room and then it's, it's clean, right? You just speak and it happens. His word makes it happens and what happens is positively good. Genesis 1-4, the light is good. Genesis 1-10, it was good. Look at verse 12, 18, 21, 25. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then in Genesis 1-31, look at verse 31. What does it say? God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Tov ma'od in the original text. There's evening, there's morning. It's tov ma'od, very good. Which brings us to the first subpoint under this first point regarding the power of the word, the power of the word of God and its sheer goodness we read of in Genesis 1 and 2. This is so clear in the opening chapter of Genesis. The creation is so good and God brings it forth by the power of his word. Elsewhere in scripture we read, let me put it in front of you, some of the references in the parentheses there. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3, look at this. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by what? The word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Again, you know, this ex nihilo, he creates out of nothing. There's nothing that you can see, and then boom, there's things that you can see. And he does so by the power of his word. Genesis 1, Hebrews 11. In the Gospel of John, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it opens, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so you see this theology in John 1 matched to Genesis 1 where the word is not just speech, but the word is also the Son. The God who we meet here in creation in Genesis 1 is a triune God. We read in Scripture and in the testimony of the church through the ages of time that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Speaking of the Spirit, you see in the text of Genesis 1, as you're getting into the text, we read in verse 2 of the Spirit of God moving over the waters. In Genesis 1, you see God speaking in the plural. Let us create. Look at verse 26. Let us create. Let us make. There's one God who eternally dwells in three persons. And, and so we see Him creating by the power of the Word. We see the Word tied to divine speech. We see the Word, John 1, tied to the divine Son. He creates by the Word, and the Word is powerful. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. It is He who made the earth by His power who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens, Jeremiah 10, 12 says. The word is powerful, bringing life. The word is personal, bringing love from the Father and the Son and the Spirit to creation. So we see the Spirit hovering. We hear of the Father. We see John 1 tied to Genesis 1 in the Son. We meet this triune God in Scripture who's loving and powerful and creative. The word is powerful and personal. The word is also prophetic. The Bible speaks of the word not just in terms of a synonym or title that's applied to the eternal Son, not just the creative power of God in, in divine speech and creating. So you have personal in the Son, you have the power of God creating by His word, but you also have the prophetic dimension of the word. So the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the prophecy, the oracle of God. The Bible is revelation of this triune God revealing Himself to us. That prophetic element is both written and oral. Okay, It is both, it is both penned and, and proclaimed, you see. Let me show you this text that's in your parentheses here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Let me put it in front of you. 
For this reason, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, for this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so oral, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Which also performs its work in you who believe. So the word is personal in the Son. The Word is powerful in creation. The world is prophetic in Scripture and also in the proclaimed, preached testimony the Gospel. And here we see in the text of 1 Thessalonians 2, the message preached regarding the Son was really, it really, but for what it really is, you see that? The Word of God. The word preached, the gospel, came with the same power of the word that brought creation into existence. And bringing things into existence, we, speaking of bringing things into existence, we read of God's special creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Let us, look at verse 26, create man in our image. Verse 27, he created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. He blessed them, verse 28, and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Then in chapter 2, you get a zoom in in the creation account, and it gives you more detail in terms of God forming man. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. God forms man from the dust of the ground. God plants him in a garden. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow trees, and there's vegetation, and there's, there's life, and there's order. In verse 18, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And all the men said, Amen. Okay, it's not good for man to be alone, especially the single brothers. Amen. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And there we read of the first marriage between Adam and between Eve. We read of God's special creation of the cosmos and of humanity and also of society and order and family. He tells them his will and his way. We read in the text of, of things that they're not supposed to do and things that they're supposed to do. Uh, one of the examples of things they're not supposed to do is to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we see what we are to do. We see what we're not to do. We see in that God is giving humanity life and law. And he does both through his word. Then in chapter 3, if you have Genesis in front of you, and I hope you do, we read of God's word being challenged. And there's a backstory to this. Um, Genesis assumes the readers know this backstory. We read in Scripture elsewhere in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, this backstory. 
We have a prophetic words uh, from God in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that are delivered by prophets to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, addressing the spiritual power that is behind these kings. And that spiritual power is none other than a fallen angel, Satan. In these texts, we read about the fall of Satan, Lucifer, and how he's cast to the earth. And here in Genesis 3, we meet him cast to the earth. And from the very beginning, we see then there is a battle with the word of God. Think about it. The Bible opens with God's word. God speaks and it happens. He creates by the power of his word. And then with the completion complete, God looks at everything and he calls it good, very good. His word produces good things. And in this good environment, God issues further word, revealing his will for creation. Again, he gives life and he gives law. He speaks a command. But the good word of this command and the good work of creation is immediately challenged. It is immediately challenged. One of the created beings, this fallen angel, calls into question the word of God, challenging the authority of God in creation and the command of God. This created being, this rebellious spirit, Satan, is typified as a serpent in the text. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, right? Has God said, you shall not eat from the tree in the garden? There you have it. It is a challenge to the word of God from the get-go. Not only a challenge, but a twisting. The twisting of the word of God. Moving down the outline with regard to the power of the Word of God, we see, number first, the power of the Word of God in its sheer goodness. Second, we see the perversion of the Word of God resulting in great detrimental results. What is perversion? Perversion is the act of perverting something. To pervert is simply to alter it from its original meaning or state to a corruption of what was first intended. To pervert is to change what is intended. In speech, when a communicator communicates, there is a meaning intended in the communication, right? I'm talking to you, and I'm intending certain things in what I've prepared to say to you this morning. So there's, there's meaning that is in the propositions that I'm delivering to you that I hope you understand. There's intent. In speech, you intend to communicate something. God is a speaking God. He's a revealing God, a communicator. He has intention then. When he speaks or when he writes God declares, God records it in text, in Scripture, and Scripture hence is full of meaning. So perversion, in the context of the Word of God, is taking what God has intended in His perspicuous or, or clear message and changing it from clarity so as to sow confusion and to cast doubt upon it and then begin to redefine things. Has God said, verse 4, did, look at verse 4, and the serpent says to the woman, you're not going to die. You see, God, when he revealed his law, when he revealed his will and way, right, the giver of life, to break his will, his way, his law, the punishment that fits the crime of rebelling against the giver of life is the taking back of life. If you, if you do what you're not supposed to do, it's going to result in death and disharmony and dysfunction and disease and decay. That's what's going to happen, you see. And so the twisting of the word of God goes a little something like this. Did, what, did he say that? I mean, really, really you're going to die? I mean, come on now. Verse 5, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. You see, he's trying to keep from you. You know, he's, he only said that because he's trying to withhold from you. Hear the slither 
of the ancient serpent has God said. God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Open to what? Open to what, you serpent? Not the, uh, having our eyes open to the holiness and the love of our Creator. Not having our eyes open to peace with the Creator, but open to a knowledge that we never wanted. The knowledge of sin. I don't know about you, but I would love, I would love to not have the knowledge of sin. I, I would love to only have the knowledge of innocence. I would love to not know what a whole ton of things mean. Uh, in, in parenting, you're often reminded of this in, in, with regard to little kids, right? Something inappropriate will come on the television or something, and your kid goes, Daddy, what's that? And you go, oh, man, I want that. I want to not know what this, what this stuff is. I, I, I would love to close my eyes and have the inability to conjure up lust and, and evil and, and, and wickedness. I, I would love to never feel greed and hate and anger, but no, it's gone. Innocence is gone. And it all begins with the serpent who took the Word of God and twisted it. Twisted it. He's the quintessential false prophet, the false preacher. Has, has God said? His slithering voice is enticing and powerful, and it makes fallen creatures crave. As you follow this opening chapter, and you read what God does in light of this, and, and you, you see He places mankind out of paradise. Paradise is lost. And outside of paradise, we see humans with their fallen cravings. Humans that were given passions that were intended for enjoying God and, and loving God, they are misfiring and they fall into craving after things that they ought not to crave. We follow the storyline of the Bible and we see very quickly that this world is not our home. Our hearts are not our home, for in them we have the corruption of the fall. Just as we are all one human race, sharing certain genetic and biological features, we are all joined by this fallen spiritual gene. It is passed down to us. It is dead to God and it is quite alive and responsive and active to the slithering voice of the serpent whose power entices, whose teachings we inevitably crave as we are prone to wander from the word, the will, and the way of God. In Genesis 3, God prophesies to Adam and Eve concerning how he would send one through the seed of the woman. Draw your eyes at verse 15. Between her seed and your seed, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of men, God would send one, a seed that would come, who would crush the kingdom of darkness. This seed, of course, as you follow the storyline of the Bible, is Christ, who according to Romans chapter 5, reverses the damage of the first Adam, for in him, the second Adam, he has come to rescue us from the death that we deserve, the condemnation that we deserve after death, he has come to deliver us. The first chapters in, in Romans unpack that to point us to Christ the seed. Five chapters later, from the fifth chapter into Romans 10, Paul asks, how will people hear of this message of the seed that has come? How will people hear of the word of God unless someone brings the word of God to them? How will people hear without preachers declaring this? Romans 10, declaring what? Romans 5. Paul opens the letter of Romans with eagerness to come and to preach the gospel, the news of Christ. And in his letter to the Romans, he writes to correct those those perversions of the Word of God who were twisting the Word. Speaking of perversions, that brings us to see on the outline, we've read of the power of the Word of God and its goodness, the perversion of the Word of God that results in detrimental results. Next, the prophets of darkness who twist the Word of God. Please move from the book of Genesis and find your way into the book of Jeremiah. 
Find your way to the fourth chapter in the book of Jeremiah. I want to give you some samplings here of God's word, warning of those who twist his word, namely false prophets, false preachers. You have a sampling in the parentheses on your outline, and I'll handle some of those cross-references as we move quickly as you're turning to Jeremiah. You, You have a reference there of Deuteronomy 13, which in the law of Moses calls for the punishment of false prophets. Uh, We could also go to the book of Judges where we see this pattern of the people hearing the word of God but turning to false prophets. We we, we read in uh, the the histories of the kings how God's people had a dynasty of these kings and these kings would turn to false prophets and bring the nation into disarray. Jeremiah is a prophet that God sent to speak back to the perversion of the word of God. Jeremiah describes the false prophets These prophets who preach a message that is not what God has revealed, and they take what God has revealed, and they question it, and they turn it. Jeremiah chapter 4, if you would draw your eyes at verse 19. Jeremiah has said that judgment and doom were coming as a punishment for the sins of the nation. In Jeremiah chapter 4, this this is a sobering word in verse 19 that he brings to the people. He says, my soul, my soul. I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed for the whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated. My my curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Right? There's disaster that, that is coming. There's devastation that is coming. Jeremiah's heart is just pounding, he says. He is in anguish over seeing the word of God twisted, as we all should be. It's sad. Jeremiah says, I can't be silent. I can't sit here and let God's people buy into this nonsense. The false preachers were saying, it's all good, but it wasn't all good. Turn from chapter 4 there to chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. In chapter 6, we see, again, judgment is coming. But the false preachers, they want to be popular. They want to be likable. And and the message of judgment isn't popular. It wasn't popular back in Jeremiah's day, and it's not popular today. You know, people will say, oh, you know, you got to, let's tone down the judgment and the hell stuff, you know, and let's talk about happy things or whatever. It's like, yeah, of course, more people are going to come when you're happy, slappy, smiley, you know, happy Gilmore or whatever, just telling jokes and make people laugh and feel good about themselves. But, but, but this is the revelation of God here. We don't have the luxury of, of doing anything other than bringing it. Chapter 6, verse 13. Look at the text. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. You see, they're preaching peace without repentance. They preach heaven without hell. They will life coach you with positive thinking so that you feel better about yourself, but it's superficial. Eternity hangs in the balance. Move from chapter 6 over to chapter 8. Again, I'm just surveying the text here, keeping in mind of the expositional context of things. It looks so spiritual. It looks so cool on the outside, Jeremiah cautions. But God sees more than the externals. He sees the internals. Chapter 8, draw your eyes at verse 10. 
chapter 8, verse 10. Everyone is greedy for gain, the prophet, the priest. Everyone practices deceit. They heal the brokenness. Verse 11, they heal the brokenness of, of, of my people superficially. Again, saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. Verse 12, were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall, upon, uh, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their judgment, they will be brought down, says the Lord. Jeremiah, as we saw earlier, his heart's beating in his chest. He's anxious. This isn't, uh, you know, his job is to actually bring bad news. Meanwhile, he's surrounded by people who are preaching these messages that are ever so popular and drawing crowds, but it's all just superficial. And so he's, bring, he's bringing the reality like, look, hey, here's the bad news. We got we to gotta get right with God. We got to turn. Move from chapter 8 over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, find your... Way to verse 13 of chapter 14. But ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you a lasting peace in this place. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? And then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they kept saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, the prophets shall meet their end. Judgment was coming on the people. God God was patient with them. They kept messing around. They deserved judgment and judgment was coming. The time for repentance would soon pass. And since they ignored true preaching and chose instead to listen to false preaching, the Babylonian captivity was inevitable. It was upon them. And God was using these foreign nations to come in and discipline his people. While Jeremiah is foretelling this doom, the false prophets were assuring the people, oh, we're fine. God, God, it, God's giving us our best life now. Everything's, everything's peachy keen. You know, it's, it's great. You know, don't worry about all that negative judgment stuff, you know coexist, get along, isn't everything great, you know? They're preaching peace when a war was at hand. Now Jesus came to end that war. Jesus came to die in the place of his people, to pay the penalty for all of their rebellion. He recapitulates uh, Israel in his own life and ministry, and he hangs on the cross of Calvary to pay for the sins of his people, to, to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah of Israel and to open up the floodgates and the blessings of the nations. He's the Savior of the earth, of His people, who He calls unto Himself, and He's the Messiah of Israel. And in Jesus' own preaching ministry, He cautions, as Jeremiah and other texts of Scriptures do, hey, listen, people, listen, God's people. He's a preacher, and He just keeps preaching to His people, sending prophets to His people. So you have, uh, under point two, prone to wander. A, you see a pattern. There's some samplings of verses there with regard to the pattern. We, we see a pattern where we are prone to this kind of uh, a falling, where God brings his word, and darkness comes and goes, did he really say that? Uh, in the book of Exodus, we read this morning of the Pharaoh and God calling Moses to rescue the people from this discipline of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh had these pagan preachers and and they, they were casting you know, spells through their preaching upon the people. And people are listening to them instead of the Word of God. We read this morning in our public reading of Scripture in Exodus about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We read in Romans chapter 9 
about how God says he did this for his own purposes, right? There is a craving of false preaching we see in this pattern. And God actually explains this in prophecy. So we move from the pattern, A, to B, the prophecy. Uh, Speaking of prophecy, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos? If you still have uh, Jeremiah open, you need to turn to the right and find your way to the little book of Amos. In Amos, God explains this phenomenon of false preachers. It's similar to what we see in Exodus regarding the pattern, where God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. We read in Exodus that Pharaoh hardens his heart as well. God simply gives him over to his hard heart, and this is a part of the phenomenon of false preaching. The people rebel against real preaching, and so God gives them over. God allows for this to happen. Amos the prophet uh, uses imagery of famine. Look at chapter 8 of Amos and find your way to the 11th chapter. Behold, Amos 8.11, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a famine of thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Verse 12, People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. They will not find it. In modern Western Los Angeles culture, the idea of famine is foreign to us because we're spoiled. Famine? We have Costco. <laughs> you know, I got Smart and Final. I got Instacart. I don't even have to go. Man, whoever created Instacart, God bless them. I mean, that, that was just genius, especially around Thanksgiving and Christmas where Costco just turns the demonic and people are fighting over rotisserie chickens and whatever. You just, you just send that poor stranger, Instacart it, bring it to my house. They show up just all frazzled with boxes. Is this the right address? I go, yes. You know, and they, they sort of pause, you know, like they're just, you know, like I'm going to tip them or something. That's in the app, man. Just set my stuff down. It's like, do you know what I went through to bring you this pot pie? I, yes, I do. That's why I sent you and not myself, right? We don't have to think about famine because of the luxury of where we find ourselves. Recall that these are words in a culture, a horticultural society that depends on crops and and, and livestock and what have you. Like, this is, a, this is a reality for them. This is the same world that Jesus was in in Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus said what? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is our sustenance. Amos says, y'all aren't listening. Guess what? A famine is coming. Oh no, famine. Oh no. It's not a famine of of food. It's not a famine of, of, of water. Oh, whew. thank you, Amos. It's a famine from the Word of God. It seems they were more concerned with their drink and their food. They didn't exactly get it. And here's the kicker. The, the, the Bible also, get this, speaks of God actually using and even raising up these false prophets as a part of this famine to discipline his people. And the one thing that they don't want is his word. Verse 11 is clear in saying that God will send a deluding force as judgment from himself so that the people will believe what is false. In the Hebrew Bible, God often punishes his people by giving them the very blindness blindness that they had chosen for themselves. Pharaoh, your heart's hard? Okay, I'm going to harden it even more. The Bible supports the idea that these false prophets are a part of God's judgment. God is giving so-called believers what they want. You don't want the word of God telling you what to believe and how to live. You don't want to enjoy God, His will and His way. Instead, you want to enjoy sin, and you want to fill your 
podcast and your YouTube feed and whatever with stuff that you want to listen to instead of His Word, fine, I'll, I'll give you over to that. The false prophets will not bring the life that you think you're going to get. What they preach is peace, peace when there is no peace. They preach soft convenience. They never preach hard truth. They talk about your best life and you finding yourself in whatever, but not finding God in repentance and faith. They, they speak of peace and not the real reality of the wrath of God that comes upon us and that we deserve. The false prophets comfort the sinners. They comfort them. You feel a sense of guilt for what you've done. You've been mean to your spouse. You've lied at work. You've looked at things online you shouldn't look at. You don't listen. You down the line and you, you feel that and the false preachers say, oh, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Oh, we all do that. We all, we all do that. You're going to be fine. But the Word of God says, no, no, no. Turn from that. Stop. <laughs> Lay it down. God loves you. He'll forgive you. Come to Him. Seek His forgiveness. You don't have peace. There is not peace. But guess what? He will provide peace through repentance and faith when you come to Him. Amos gets this. Jeremiah gets this. The, the prophets are warning that the very presence of the false prophets is evidence that we're under judgment. Look at Ezekiel chapter 13. I'll put it in front of you, verse 10. It is definitely because they misled my people, saying, Peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. They just come along and they make everything seem like everyone's going to be fine. The true preachers of His Word throughout the history of Scripture and the history of His people are mocked as a result of this, ignored as a result of this. They become public enemy number one. Meanwhile, the false prophets have the biggest stages, the biggest light shows, the, the largest amount of followers, but it's all a famine. It's not actually food. Given this biblical testimony, it is not far-fetched to see the season that is upon us where we see the popular preachers of our day fitting the very pattern of the Word of God warning. And it is evident that we, I believe, in North America, in Western culture, we are under a judgment of God. The very presence and the popularity of, you know, this soft-pedaling preaching and twisting of the Word of God. The Bible warns us in 2 Timothy 4, 3, that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This may be in the New Testament, but it's not new as we've seen in the Old. The Hebrew Bible warns of this craving and twisting of the Word of God. We were in Jeremiah a moment ago. Let me put it in front of you again. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. That, that's just horrible. It, it breaks my heart on Sunday mornings when I wake up. I used to, um, I, used to and I had to stop doing it because it was making me uh, even more bald than I already am. I was just pulling my hair out. I used to turn on the TV in the morning on Sundays as I'm getting ready for church and I'd have like, you know, Joel Osteen or whoever, one of the false prophets is just on the TV and you just, it's like, this is so sad. And look at all these people. They just love this stuff. And what, what, what are they doing? They're taking the plain meaning of the text. They're taking the intended meaning of the text and they're perverting it and twisting it. Why are they doing it? Because people love it. Why do they love it? Because the intended meaning of the text confronts us. The intended meaning of the text is not cool. 
It's not cool. So you're like, I don't know, you know. It's like being in junior high when my dad would uh, show up to pick me up from school with, like, you know, some wax shoes on and a fanny pack. And it's like, who's that guy? I don't, I don't know, you know. It's like, <laughs> I saw you get in the car with him. I, I, he, he kidnapped me. I don't, you know, it's like, that's my dad. You know, you're just a rebellious teenager that's worried about being too cool. That your, you know, your father who raised you and loved you, you're like, oh, I'm ashamed of him. He's not cool like my other friend's dad's. Johnny Hopkins' dad was all buff and just ripped neck. He'd show up to pick his son up in a tank top. Like, why can't you be like Johnny Hopkins' dad, dad? You know, my dad's like, whatever. You know, he loved me. You're just a little punk kid who's ashamed because it's not cool. That's what false preachers are. They're punk kids who are ashamed of the Word of God. And so they read the Word of God and they find little verses, right? They can go to Jeremiah. I have a plan for you, plan that you will prosper, and just forget all the other parts about judgment and repent and turn and all that stuff. And we'll just quote those little nice verses about all these wonderful things God has in store for you. The plain meaning of the text that God intended calls us to repent and turn from sin. Not because God is some ogre in heaven shaking his fist at us because he loves pointing out every time you do something wrong. No, because he loves us. And sin allures us and promises things that it can't deliver on. And any good parent, any good parent, doesn't want their children to fall into that because it will ruin them. God's word is centered on God. Fallen humans, however, don't want a word that is centered on God. They want a word that is centered on themselves. And this is a part of the pattern. This is the pattern A, B, the prophecy warning us. C, the punishment Move from the book of Amos over to the book of Isaiah, please. And while you are turning in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, let's consider some cross-references. We're going to look at Isaiah 19 in just a moment. While you're turning there, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. Here's a clear instance of the Bible teaching of how God raises up false prophets. Look at this. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, and for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So the presence of this in our culture and, in, and, and back in that day is simply evidence of God's judgment. Why do we have all these false preachers? Why do we have all this, you know, sort of American prosperity gospel stuff going on? It's because we're under judgment. God sends the deluding influence to show his people what's going on. If only they would have eyes to see and ears to hear. In 1 Kings chapter 22, God shows himself sovereign over these deceiving spirits in the false prophets. Look at 1 Kings 22, 23. The Lord puts a deceiving spirit in the mouth of your prophets, the text says. The Lord proclaims disaster against you. The scripture is clear that God is not losing his throne over the prophets. It's Satan himself in Genesis 3 with the twisting of the word. God's not in heaven clamoring like, oh no, what will I do? This devil is so strong, you know. It's not like Yahweh's in an arm wrestling contest, you know, with the devil, you know. He's got to pull the Sylvester Stallone over the top and get him, you know. There's no struggle. There's no power play. The presence of the serpent in the garden is a part of God proving that he's He's sovereign. The presence of the false prophets is a part of God proving that he's sovereign. He's in control. He's giving the people what they want. This is what they crave in the Old Testament. This is what they crave. 
And so God often punishes the people by giving them the false prophets and blindness. It is what they're craving for. Okay, Isaiah, I ask you to turn to chapter 19, verse 14. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray and all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. That's, that's, that's gross. That's gross. Maybe you've been there, you came out of the club, lifestyle, Jesus grabbed you, you've seen people in their vomit. Strong, strong imagery. That's Isaiah 19. Go forward 10 chapters. Find your way to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, we see the preacher Isaiah continuing, describing their cravings. Draw your eyes to 29 verse 8. It will be when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, but when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, but when he awakens, behold, he is faint. And his thirst is not quenched, but the multitude of the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He, the Lord, has shut your eyes. The prophets, he has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then the book will be given, verse 12, to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he'll say, I cannot read it. Verse 13, then the Lord said, because of this, the people draw near with their words, and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. Powerful imagery again. The delusion is strong. The people are craving this false preaching. They have a book in front of them, but they are illiterate. They are drunk, but not with wine. They are drunk with sin. And so they are hungry for more sin. And they are hungry for those who will tell them what they want to hear. You've, you've been there, or, and you've no doubt had friends who've done this sort of thing. You've got a friend who's going through something, or a friend that has a decision to make, maybe about their marriage or parenting or whatever, and they have a decision to make, but they've already made the decision up in their mind. You know where I'm going with this? And so they go to people who are going to tell them what they want to hear. They go to the people who are going to agree with the decision that they've already made. Right? I want to do this, but let me, you know, I know that Sally is going to tell me, yeah, you should do that. I know Bill's going to tell me, yeah, you should do that. But you know, your friends over here, your godly friends over here are going to say, I don't, I don't think you should do that for your kids. I don't think you should do that with your spouse. I don't think you should do that with your money. I don't think, I don't think, it, think that, that, I don't think you should watch. I don't think you should, yeah, but I don't want to hear that. So I'm going to convince myself that I'm doing the right thing by drawing people to me who are going to tell me what I want to do. That's what Isaiah 29 is getting at. But this isn't a decision, a small decision about your life. This is about listening to the word of God. They're drunk. It's not wine, it's sin. And God has given them over. In our public reading of Scripture, we read from Exodus and we also read from Romans. And in Romans, in the opening chapter that we read today, that was the language that God gives them over to this depraved mind. This, this is the pattern. This is the pattern that we are prone to wander. Now, thankfully, third on your outline, God preserves among His people. Turn to the book of Nehemiah. This means if you're in Isaiah, you're going to be turning to the left and find your way to Nehemiah chapter 9. Throughout the Bible, we see God preserving a remnant. What is a remnant? A remnant refers to a remaining part, trace, or fragment of something that was once larger. You had this larger thing, we've got just a remnant of it. 
As a result, a remnant is special. The larger original is gone, but we got a little piece of that larger original. It's an artifact. It belongs in a museum under a special light. It's special. In light of the sad reality that we are prone to wander, we have the faithfulness of God in that He is powerful to preserve a witness. A, under preservation of witness, you see the protection. Throughout the Bible, we see that when God's people deserve punishment, He is gracious to still preserve. Genesis 6, Noah and his family, a remnant. Genesis 19, uh, 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 Lot and his two daughters, a remnant from Sodom and Gomorrah. You have Isaiah 10 in the parentheses there. The prophet speaks of God's judgment on pagan powers, the Assyrians. And he uses discipline to those who are prone to wander. And then he goes on in verses 20 and 21 to say, In that day the remnant of Israel... In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One. A remnant will return. God always preserves a remnant. In the book of Kings, when Israel is wandering bad, we see God telling the prophet Elijah not to worry because he has a remnant. God assures him in 1 Kings 19 that there are thousands who have not bowed the knee to Baal and those whose mouths have not kissed him. You see, God is faithful. He always preserves a remnant. God is preserving Israel throughout the storyline of the Bible. She's prone to wander, but God preserves her. We read in Romans chapter 9 through 11 in the New Testament of this reality. Here's a sampling from verses 27 and 29 in front of you in Romans 9. Isaiah, Paul references, Though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Right? We read of God preserving His people. Even to this very day, God is faithful to His people of promise. Say, unbelieving Israel? Yeah, read the Bible. Unbelieving Israel, he always preserves a remnant. And so, so to this day, even you turn on the news, there's war in Israel. There's still this people of Israel. There's, there's still a remnant in the church that's proclaiming the good news of the Messiah of Israel to Israel and to the nations. This proves God's preservation of his witness and his grace. We see his protection. B, we see his patience. On your outline, you have a sampling of verses that describe the patience of God. Exodus 34, verse 6, God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abiding in loving kindness and truth. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, the patience of God we read about, and his patience specifically in the days of Noah. 2 Peter chapter 3, do not let this fact escape you, beloved, right? That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is what patient towards you. I ask you to turn to Nehemiah, some quick context here as the history goes, right? We saw earlier with Assyria and Babylon as part of God's discipline and, 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 and Israel's wiped out. They go into exile and after two generations have passed, decades have passed, now God in his faithfulness has preserved a remnant that he brings back to the land of Israel. It's called the post-exile. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, look at verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard the cry of the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders, verse 10. Skip to verse 12. With a pillar of the cloud, you led day by day. God leads them, right, to light the way where they should go. Verse 13. Then you, God, you came down from Mount Sinai. You spoke. Right? He gives his word to his people. Even when they haven't been listening, he brings his word to the people. Look at verse 15. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for their thirst. God gives word to their souls and he cares for their bodies. Verse 16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments and they refused to listen. 
prone to wander. Keep reading verse 17. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made themselves a calf of molten metal, and they said, this is your God who you brought up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Even then, verse 19, you in great compassion did not forsake them. The book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, the post-exilic prophets along with them, Esther, records how God was faithful to his people in spite of being prone to wander. So you see on your outline there, the protection, you see the patience, see, you see the post-exilic proof. Draw your eyes from chapter 9 into chapter 8 just before it. In chapter 8, he's brought them back to the land. They've gone for two generations without their land, for two generations without their temple, for two generations without the word of God. Look at chapter 8, draw your eyes at verse 1. They come back to the land, and all the people gathered as one man at the square. There's one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Ezra the priest brought the law with the assembly of the men and the women, and who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Uh, the, 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 the ruler had given the people back their temple accessories, their books, the things that Babylon had jacked from them. They, they, they pulled out of the garage and said, here you guys, can go back to your land, we don't care. Here's your books and your temple stuff and whatever. You know, go have fun. So they whip out the Bible that for generations they hadn't had. Look at verse 3. And he read it before the square in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. From morning to midday, he's preaching for hours and hours and hours and hours. Right? And people think my hour, five-minute sermons are long. But this guy's going for hours and hours and hours. And they can't get enough. They can't get enough. They want the word. This week, people listen to three hours of Cat Williams. And yet people can't listen to a 30-minute sermon. You listen to Joe Rogan and whatever, whatever else for hours, hours. And you go, I don't, a one-hour sermon, that, that's a lot. You say, well, well, but Pastor Matt, I mean, let's be honest. Like, they're funny, you know. They're funny. I can listen to three hours of that. Cat Williams, he's like crazy Kanye. It's like, oh, Kanye, is, it's funny, you know. I mean, your sermon's not exactly that. I go, yeah, but I'm not a comedian. I'm a gospel herald. That's what preachers are supposed to do. And oh, that we would love it the way the world loves its comedy or its entertainment and sports. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium. There's a bunch of names that are given of leaders. Verse, okay, in verse 4, skip to verse 5. Ezra opens the book in the sight of the people, and he's standing on all the people. He opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen. And they're lifting their hands, and they're bowing low, and they're worshiping the Lord with their faces. Verse 7, Jeshua, skip all the long names. The Levites explain, look at verse 7, the Levites explain the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, the law of God, translating it to give sense so that they understood the reading. They needed to translate the text because they had been in Babylon for generations. They had lost the language of the word of God. So the scholars had to translate it to the people 
for the purposes of explaining the text. We're still doing this today. This is why, this is why I suffered through years of Greek and Hebrew and what have you, because preacher's job is to take the text, the intended meaning, and bring it to the people. And the intended meaning of today's message, New Year's same word, is to remind us it might be a new year, but I don't have a new message for you in 2024. I'm going to be bringing the same message every Sunday. The same thing, the same thing, the same thing. You say, what does it mean? I had, uh, I'll never forget this, a pastor friend, he goes, man, Matt, where, how do you come up with all these messages? Like, where do you get your ideas from? You know, like, I, I just, I, I, I just run out of ideas. I go, Bro, look at, the, like, look at this thing. We've got 66 books in here. How do you ever, just start in a book and work your way through it for Pete's sake. If you can't, you know, just, just chapter one, verse one and just move through it. The ideas are all in here. Our job isn't to come up with new ideas or a new message. Our job is to herald the same, same, same thing that was entrusted and handed down to us. What happened in Nehemiah chapter eight was a revival. People's lives are changed. And that revival is contingent on the Word of God and the faithfulness of the people to the Word of God. And that requires people to crave the Word and to crave the preaching of the Word. A part of that craving entails being in the Word. So I hope in 2024 you'll do a read through the Bible schedule and you'll get into the Word and you'll come on Sunday hungry to hear the Word. And you'll tell your friends that are, you know, in these feel-good, happy, slappy kinds of things like, hey, you got to hear the word and call them to hear the word. Many of them are actually lost. They need to hear the gospel because they've sat under pulpits that are falling under the very judgment of God that we saw in the prophetic pattern. God is giving them what they want to hear. The great uh, homiletics professor, homiletics is the study of preaching, Dr. Haddon Robinson wrote, those in the pulpit face the pressing temptation to deliver some message other than that of the scriptures. A political system, either right wing or left wing, a theory of economics, a new religious philosophy, old religious slogans, or a trend in psychology. Ministers can pro proclaim anything in a stained glass voice at 11.30 on Sunday morning following the singing of hymns. That's awesome. It's about 11.30 right now. And then they fail to preach the scriptures. They abandon their authority. No longer do they confront their hearers with the word of God. That is why most modern preaching evokes little more than a wide yawn. God is not in it. This brings to the final point on your outline on the back there is purity in worship. We began the message seeing the power of the word. God is a preacher. He creates by preaching. His word is powerful. We see the tie from Genesis 1 to John 1. His word is personal. The eternal son is one with the father and the spirit. He is the Word. He preaches the Word. The Spirit gives us the written, inerrant, inspired Word that I'm proclaiming to you today. God speaks the creation into existence. God speaks and calls Abram out of Ur. God makes Abram into the father of a people. To Isaac, to Jacob, his promises. To Moses on Mount Sinai, he brings the Word. God told the prophet Ezekiel to prophesy to the dead, dry bones in a vision and said that by the word they would come to life. His word brings life. The problem, by way of conclusion here, is biblical ignorance and neglect. Um, we saw that as the pattern, right? You, you're, you're not drunk with wine, you're drunk with sin. 
We see in Nehemiah this revival. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but to remind you, if you know what happens after Ezra and Nehemiah, the people grow cold. They don't finish the campaign. The, the ending of the Hebrew Bible ends on a sad note and is followed by 400 years of silence where God doesn't bring word to the people. You say, after all of that, after being brought back, after this great revival that we just saw in Nehemiah 8, the people just go back to business as usual. The Holy Hebrew Bible ends with them in darkness. But here's, here's, here's the wonderful thing. It also ends with a promise to send a true prophet, Malachi 4.5, who will restore the hearts of the people. And that prophet is John the Baptizer, who comes 400 years in silence and, and, and into the silence speaks. And as he speaks, he says what? Repent. Right? The king has come. Repent. Prepare the way. Right? And then we meet the greatest preacher of them all, Jesus. And he is the prescription for our wandering. The problem is sin. The antidote is the Savior. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh, the world's greatest preacher. He trains and he commissions his church to go and to make disciples in the power of his Word. And the purpose of this isn't just to go around preaching, preaching, preaching. The purpose of it is worship. We, we preach where there isn't worship. Missions exist because worship does not and in our worship, he's calling us to be a people, his church. And as a people, we come to hear Christ speak, and he speaks through his word, not through pastors, not through preachers. He speaks through his word. So insofar as pastors and preachers are true to explaining the intended meaning of the text, you can actually hear Jesus speaking to his church. And in response to hearing his sweet voice, the slithering voice of the serpent is drowned out and muted. And in response to hearing his sweet voice, he beckons us to come to his table of communion as often as you gather. Do this in remembrance of me. And in just a moment, we'll do that. We respond to the preaching of the gospel with the pictures of the gospel. His body broken, his blood shed for us. And I invite you. I invite you to come to the table. More, invite, more importantly, I invite you to come to him to have your sins forgiven, to be made new and whole in Him. The problem is sin. The prescription to that problem is Christ. Lastly, the power for the church is Scripture and Spirit. New year, same word. By the grace of God, over, over my dead body and the next generation that leads this church, they'll stay true to the same word. In the new year, people are always looking for new things. It's our, you know... Go to the gym in January, right? It's all the people who weren't going last year, you know? And uh, come February, they're all gone. I worked in a gym for years. You know, January, everyone's in there, about to do this, I got my goals. You know, it's like, I'll see you next year. <laughs> you know, like, you, we don't need any newfangled thing, you know? Uh, God's people, sadly, are always trying to find some new, you know, if we get a new website or we get a new this, then the church will grow. Yeah, but the bait determines the catch. What are you fishing for? Are you fishing for the lost? Are you fishing for genuine worship of God? Or are you just falling into the North American church game of bodies in the building and bucks? 
Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. A new year. Resolve to be in the Word. Resolve to being in church on Sunday mornings. Resolve to craving the Word. Church on Sunday morning doesn't begin Sunday morning. It begins Saturday. You prepare yourself for it, right? You put yourself to bed early. You lay out your stuff. You get ready for it. You read the Word. You schedule. You make it a priority. New Year's resolutions for us resolve to be committed to the church, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Resolve not just to be digging into the Word and liking sermons or whatever, but resolve to be a people of the Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, This is the word of the Lord saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I close with a verse that I gave you guys earlier in 1 Thessalonians. Recall what Paul said, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And what does the Word of God do? It performs its work in you who believe. You will be changed in 2024 if you commit yourself to this same Word. And you commit yourself to worshiping this triune God. Tonight we will gather back here for more Word at 4 o'clock. First Sunday of every month we're committing morning and evening to coming together, to hearing His Word, and making it a priority. New year, same word, and that same word is what we need for the new year. Let's pray, let's have communion, let's sing to our triune and gracious God. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that we are spoiled. We have no excuse not to read your word. We have dozens and dozens of English Bibles. There's people who don't even have the Bible in their language. We're spoiled. We're prone to wander. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, by your Spirit, you would do a work in us to draw us in repentance and faith, especially now as we come to your table to celebrate what you have done. By your Spirit, draw us to crave your Word. By your Spirit, draw us to want to hear your Word, read your Word, devour your Word, obey your Word. By your Spirit, would you do this work in us? And may your word birth life and birth a passion for those who are far from your word. May this be a year of digging into scripture and a year of bearing witness of you to the lost around us. May this be a year of enriching our worship. So as we come to the table now, Lord, we pray to that end. Stir our passions unto you, we pray, as we come to the table, as we sing praise to you. And I ask this in the name above all names. In the name of Jesus. Amen.